This episode of the Seabros Fishing Podcast is brought to you by Monahans Marine. We recently partnered with Monahans and are excited to be working with a local marine business that has been serving the South Shore of Massachusetts since 1961. For decades, the crew at Monahans has been helping generations of boat owners with outboard parts, boat service, marine equipment, and fishing tackle. Their professionalism and passion for being on the water has made them one of the most reputable boating headquarters in the Northeast. Monahans is located on Washington Street in Weymouth, and they are currently a Jones Brothers and Tidewater Boats retailer and have the most well-stocked inventory of Yamaha outboards, parts, and rigging in mass. The entire staff and crew of technicians have decades of experience, and as a recent addition, Monahans has built and rigged out a brand new 4,000 square foot offshore and inshore fishing tackle shop. They are fully stocked with everything needed for offshore canyon fishing, nearshore bluefin tuna fishing, striped bass fishing, and more. We're excited to be able to use this new space as a home base to maintain our own tackle and charter fishing fleet, as well as use it as a spot to film some upcoming podcasts and workshops. As a part of this partnership, Monahans has been generous enough to give all listeners a discount on anything in their store and facility. So when shopping at Monahans, if you use promo code MBG24 at checkout, you'll receive 10% off any purchase in their tackle or marine department. To learn more about Monahans Marine, their location, boat and engine inventory, or parts, visit monahansmarine.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mass Bay Guides. Mass Bay Guides is our family-run charter fishing fleet that's based out of Situate, Massachusetts. We've been providing anglers with the ultimate fishing adventure for over 20 years. Whether you're looking to put together a multi-boat corporate fishing trip, a trip for your family, or you're an avid angler looking to catch a giant bluefin tuna, our crew will do anything it takes to make sure you and your friends and your family have a great day on the water. To book a trip with us, please visit the Mass Bay Guides website, www.massbayguides.com. You can search prices, trip information, and get the latest reports and links to our social media pages there. You can also find us directly on Facebook and Instagram and just search Mass Bay Guides. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Black Oak LED Lighting. Black Oak LED manufactures high-quality LED lighting, at a reasonable price for the fishing, boating, hunting, and military communities. If you're looking to upgrade the lighting system on your boat, Black Oak LED provides many different options of marine-grade lighting, including cockpit spreader lights, LED light bars, undergunnel lights, and underwater lights. We've had Black Oak LED lighting on both of our boats for several seasons now with zero failure, zero issues. They're an essential tool for us to help ensure safe rides home, to and from our fishing grounds in low light and poor visibility conditions. And their series of marine spreader lights are also a great tool for getting bait fish to school around your boat in the dark. If you're re-rigging your boat or outfitting a new vessel, check out Black Oak LED for your lighting systems. Make sure to use the promo code GIANTBLUEFIN for 20% off your order. This episode is brought to you by Afuera Coffee Company. Afuera Coffee Company was started by and for people who not only love exploring the outdoors, but care deeply about restoring and preserving our environments and habitats so everyone can enjoy them for years to come. To help work towards this, they donate 5% of all sales to charities and organizations currently donating to Cappins for Clean Water. 
Everything done at Afuera has sustainability as the main focus, sourcing beans from certified Rainforest Alliance farms, using compostable coffee bags, mailers, stickers, packaging, and of course, donating a portion of sales, not just profits to protect Mother Nature. It is their dream that through many small decisions, such as choosing and brewing your go-to coffee, that we can all make a substantial difference in the health and cleanliness of our world. Afuera is doing it right and makes a tasty product. If you want to give Afuera Coffee a try, visit afueracoffee.com and use promo code MASSBAYGUIDES for 15% off your first order. Our guest on this episode of the podcast is an accomplished marine biologist, underwater explorer, photographer, aquarist, and author. He has been a fisheries biologist with Massachusetts Marine Fisheries since 1987 and currently heads up the Massachusetts Shark Research Program, MSRP. He holds a master's degree from the University of Rhode Island and a PhD from Boston University. He is a perfect example of someone having a dream and persisting to make it a reality. As a young boy, after the release of the movie Jaws in 1975, he aspired to become the well-known fictitious marine biologist and shark scientist, Matt Hooper. And that is exactly what happened. For more than 35 years, our guest has been one of the most renowned marine biologists and shark scientists in the world. He has been actively involved in the study of life history, ecology, physiology of sharks. His research has spanned multiple fish habitats around the globe from the frigid waters of the Arctic Circle to coral reefs in the tropical Central Pacific. In recent years, our guest has become the face of all things shark-related on Cape Cod. Our guest and his associate, John Chisholm, were the first to successfully tag and track great white sharks in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean using high-tech tags through the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. The organization now has the ability to track local and long-range movements, study behavior and biology, and estimate population size of great whites in the area. Since our guest began tagging white sharks in Cape Cod and Massachusetts, he and his crew have tagged over 280 animals. We've been fortunate to know our guest since we were kids. We have always admired his passion and knowledge for the ocean. This conversation was truly incredible, and we hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did. Without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gregory Skolmel. Welcome to the Sea Bros Fishing Podcast, where we follow three words of wisdom. You can't catch them if you don't have a hook in the water. Always trust your instincts. And the last, you'll just have to keep listening. Stay tight. You guys there? We got you, sir. We have you. Let me uh, let me put this thing in. How's that? Perfect. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's been a long time since. I've talked to you actually. Last time I talked to you was uh, that big male mako shark about 
10 years 12, ago 12, 12 years, years ago. ago that was was that up in situate it Where was, was that? it was situate yeah. harbor yeah yeah that was that that giant male we dissected it right on the docks and like channels channel four somebody came by yeah bianca yep. de la garza got her stiletto heel stuck in the rod holder getting on and off yeah. the boat <laughs> tank tanked it into the boat <laughs> <laughs> what the hell happened to bianca shit she was hot ah uh, she was she, yeah oh, is. she still is. is she still is <laughs> she seems ageless at this point i think what does she still do news i don't think so she does um she does uh like domestic stuff now, like like social media, repping different products. I believe. Oh. I, I I know way too much about her. Yeah, I guess that could. <laughs> I was gonna. We could go down the. Uh... I was gonna say, Jesus. <laughs> so, Man, I'm so just. Tr- first things first. How how is your uh, how is your knee? It's your knee, right? No, I had my hip done hip, three hip. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Um, yeah. I'm down to a cane, and um, uh, I think by the end of next week, I won't even have that. Wow. It's amazing, amazing how quick that that recovery process is. Uh, it, it really is. Um, uh, uh, it's amazing how quick the surgery is and how, uh, how fast they had me, you know, home. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, it was just, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. So I'm excited about getting back to normal and, and not struggling with arthritis like i was the last couple of years that's great was it a complete Good. replacement i'm assuming yeah of uh, my right my right hip gotcha. my right side so yeah complete replacement and uh it, it uh, feels pretty good that's great one one quick thing not to change topics but your mic is hitting your zipper on your that's there, not good there you go perfecto much better. Awesome. Well, n- well, now I got look like a tur- <laughs> that look, which is which is. You can either do which, the collar approach, like fold it down, like polo collar style, or you could go <laughs> turtleneck, whatever you prefer. That's much better. Now, if it was old Greg, if, our father, he'd probably go straight turtleneck. <laughs> yeah, he would rock the turtleneck the whole time. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm at that age too. I'm getting to that age where I'm going to do just turtlenecks. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it happens when you get to be an old shit. You know, that's what happens to me. You're not, um, you're not that old. You're not that. Well, I'm getting up there, buddy. I, you know, you feel old when you have a hip replacement. Yeah. You know, you you just do. Um, well, let me know if that's okay in terms of the mic. I don't want to no, screw things up. You're good. We'll and see how it goes. As far as the rules of the road, too, we're we're recording. We can cut out anything after the fact. Oh, um, all right, great. Sw- yep. Swear swearing. Yeah, is this fine. isn't live. This is not live. This is just. Casual right. conversation, fishermen talking, scientists, fishermen talking, having a good old time in the morning. Um, uh, that sounds fine. I like that kind of shit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> swearing's one hundred percent fine and very encouraged. Yeah, <laughs> it, it exhibits uh, passion. It exhibits passion. So <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, uh, so the way the way we like to kind of start these things off is with some random questions. So we have some shark related and fishing related questions and then we just have some funny personal questions for you too um what should we start with i you have to start you have with, to start with that yeah so we 
we did we did a little bit of scomal research over the last a lot of scomal a lot of scomal research over the last couple of days yeah we dug up the good stuff. we dug up some uh ted talks we dug up some uh some zoom calls that you did with some amazing diagrams data i mean as you know you could i'm assuming you could talk about this for weeks and weeks and weeks straight and still not be done with it but um we have a couple of highlights from some previous content that you've been a part of. So we'll, we'll try to hit on that after the rapid fire. But question number one, what is your favorite scene in Jaws? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Um, shit. There's a lot of good ones. Uh, and no, you know, it's amazing. No one's ever asked me that. Uh, nice. You know, I, uh, it's amazing how Jaws kind of played out in my career. Um, one of my fa- one of my favorite scenes was uh, the dead shark, believe it or not, on the dock, because um, that was a real tiger shark. A what? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> a, a what? You know, um, and and they, and they ended up doing a dissection on that shark, you know, which is something I did a lot of in the early part of my career, and I still do dissections. Um, but, but really, I think the scene that jumps out at me when I was a kid sitting in a movie theater, and that's how old I was. I I mean, I was, I am, uh, I saw, I saw Jaws in a movie theater, um, when it came out and, um, so jealous of that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I think it's when, when they're on the bow of the boat and that shark, uh, you know, swims by the boat and you get a sense and it actually looks real to me. That shark you know, there are a lot of scenes in that film where that shark looks plastic and fake. Right. Um, now, but back then, there are a few scenes that I thought looked really pretty striking, uh, like a real shark, and it steams along the side of the boat. And I think I think Hooper's on the bow and Quince on the bow, and he's getting ready to to shoot the shark with the with this uh, really cool harpoon gun, harpoon rifle. Right. And he's waiting for 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 Hooper to tie the knot. And Hooper's going, yeah, don't wait for me. Don't wait for me. <laughs> right. And come, Mr. Hooper, come on, Hooper. And and then he shoots it and, he, and it drags the barrel out. I mean, that to me is really an exciting part of the film where you really get a view of the shark, you know, and its size. Right. And uh, uh, that that jumps out at me as uh, my favorite scene, at least when I saw it in the theater. Would you have ever thought that in what thirty plus years later that would be that would be truly you on the end of the pulpit, you know, on the boat doing exactly that? That really is an amazing shot, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never thought that would be me. I mean, I I, that that movie inspired me, Mm -hmm. and I and I thought, well, you know, I'd love to do what this guy Hooper does, and I think that would be really fun. Um, whether I thought I'd be on the bow of a pulpit, you know, doing similar things to white sharks, uh, no, that, that was beyond my imagination. It's incredible. That's awesome. We're jealous. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, pinch I got myself. goosebumps. I know. <laughs> I got to pinch myself, you know. <laughs> That's great. Um, have you ever been bitten? This episode is sponsored by Costa Del Mar. If you didn't know already, Costa makes some of the best fishing sunglasses on the market. They have a ton of frame options and offer a wide variety of lens colors. And their 580 color enhancing polarized lens technology is tried and true. 
We are big fans of their blue mirror lenses for our offshore fishing charters and their green mirror lenses for inshore. They've stepped up their game big time and they offer a great new line of performance fishing apparel. We've been wearing a lot of it the past few seasons on charters. We found that all of it's well-designed, comfortable, durable, quick drying. It can handle a beating. To check out Costa's great selection of sunglasses, apparel, and wide variety of other products, visit costadelmar.com. Uh, no, I have never, I've never been bitten. Uh, not and and bitten meaning that the shark actually, I mean, my hand or my some body part was in in the mouth of a shark. No, I've never been bitten. It, it, there's been a couple instances where I've gotten close. Um, all all the wounds I've gotten from shark teeth are are basically self inflicted. Um, I went through this stage early on in my career when we were doing a lot of shark dissections to collect shark jaws and to clean them. And I still do. I clean, I clean jaws every now and then. Um, and the teeth are so sharp and you really are, are digging away at these things that every time I clean a shark jaw, even now, I'll slip and cut myself on teeth. Mm. Um, but in terms of a live shark biting me, that has, that has never happened. Knock, hopefully, on, hopefully knock on wood. Yeah. Knock and on I wood. hope it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that you guys asked this damn question, you know, I'm going to get eaten this summer. Uh, <laughs> well, oh you, came, you came close. We were watching one video from you a couple of years ago on the pulpit and that, that shark. I, I'm assuming I was not there, but spectator sidelines watching the video of it. It looked like you spooked it with the hull or something to cause it to jump like that. But you were there. What, what happened during during that you were you were out of your mind excited about almost getting your feet bit off by a great white shark by the way that that totally freaked me out um because i i'd never experienced that um that shark and i could never i couldn't see that shark that water off orleans was um really coffee like it was and sometimes you get that kinds of that kind of, of visibility where there's no visibility uh on the outer cape and um, it was late in the season. And then, uh, you know, Wayne Davis, the pilot, telling me it's right under you. It's right there. And you can hear it in the video. And then um, out of nowhere, the shark just comes up and with its mouth wide open. And I literally looked down into the oh, open jaws of this shark, which, you know, you see that on TV sometimes with with, with creative photography and filmmaking. Um, but to that really, and I, I, had, I didn't think it was real. So if you listen to the video, I'm like, did anyone else see that? Did you see that, John, or, or the other boat? Did you see that? Um, and they said, holy crap. Yeah, we saw that. That was amazing. And it was the, the guy on the other boat, um, you know, Josh Higgins, who was driving that other boat, he, he actually, you know, was so taken back by that that he, 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 he pulled out a piece of paper and drew it for me and said, this is what it looked like to me. Wow. Um, and what I, and I thought a lot about it. I mean, I wasn't freaked out that much immediately because it was a split second, mm. but as I watched that video and over and over and over again, I can only think that that shark, you know, was, was making out what they do is these animals respond to, uh, incoming information. And I think the information that animal was perceiving was, you know, my image, some movement, on the surface of the water. You know, if you, if you go, if you go diving and you look up, you know, you could see very well, 
looking up versus looking down. And that's what these sharks do. They're looking for silhouettes. They're looking for images. And they interpret these as potential prey. And I think that shark, you know, saw my moving image uh, and, and just reacted to it. It was in hunting mode and came up and was attempting to bite that image at the surface. Wow. And its momentum carried it out of the water and it was wide open. So I do think it was a predatory strike. Um, and fortunately, a failed one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Fortunately, you had a little bit of protection from the pulpit below you. And it's a it's yeah. a well-made pulpit, too. It's not like a, some of these other yeah. pulpits. It's just a pole. I mean, it's it's protecting your leg. It actually has railing. It's not like right. a tuna pulpit where it's just, you know, support cables going out to the to right. the end. Yeah. Of yeah. I mean, the tuna pulpits I've been out on, they're great. Um, there's not a lot of protection, but they're much higher off the water. Mm. You know, this pulpit has evolved. You know, we broke this pulpit in its early stages because of, you know, the movement on me on the boat. Yes, it wasn't as built as well. And they went back and totally reinforced it. It's a fantastic boat. And and I was really well protected, you know, but what gets me thinking is that shark probably couldn't have snatched me off the pulpit Mm. at all. But what if a shark comes up to the side of me and lands on me? That that that's what scares me yeah you know? yeah yeah um wow don't want one of those those bastards landing on me no no <laughs> that would be bad <laughs> that'd be bad that'd be bad um back to uh dissection of sharks and you mentioned you've done a lot of it and you've probably got this question several times but what's the weirdest strangest thing you've found inside of a shark well, you know, if I, if I don't limit it to white sharks, I mean, white sharks, you tend to find, you know, marine mammals. So, and they stink, you know? Yeah. Um, so if you, if you cut open a white shark, you, you'll get everything from dead whale to seals, right? And, um, and then you'll get fish, you know, we've gotten striped bass and, and white sharks. Um, but, you know, we, when I was younger, we were doing a lot of research cruises where we were, we were cutting open a lot of stomachs and working with scientists as a younger scientist myself, I was learning quite a bit on how you determine what sharks eat. And so the, the most exciting sharks to cut open were, were tiger sharks because, you know, has, has been demonstrated in, in scientific literature and in television, they'll eat almost anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would find horseshoe crabs in tiger sharks. We would find, uh, um, birds, you know, birds and tiger sharks, they'd snatch them off the surface. So everything basically from the bottom uh, to the top of the water column. And one time we actually found we would find porpoise or dolphin parts as well. Wow. And one of the weirdest things we ever found, and I feel sorry for this poor dolphin, but was a, a, a dolphin penis. Wow. You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was pretty young. I go, what the hell is that? And, you know, the scientist I'm working with, he tells me and I go, oh, Christ, that poor, <laughs> that poor dolphin. I hope he didn't make it. <laughs> I hope he did. That was the end. <laughs> but we've never found license plates or anything like that. We have found garbage. You know, tiger sharks will eat garbage. Um, but they're definitely the most exciting to cut up. Wow. That's cool. Now, you've, I'm sure you've, and I've seen, you've been involved with a lot of the towing of seal decoys and, and whatnot. Have you, have you done that uh, in Massachusetts waters? And have you gotten action doing that before? Well, we, we um, my agency, Division of Marine Fisheries, actually um, outlawed the use of decoys in state waters. And I think it's a, an, it's a, 
I think it's a good regulatory move right? because um, there was, there, there have been people out there prior to that regulation that were towing decoys and getting photographs of white sharks coming up and destroying them. Wow. Um, And we felt that, you know, and I think this was a good move. I really do. The, the dragging, you know, surfboards or decoys, you know, near swimming beaches to get these animals to strike is probably not a very good idea. No. Yeah. You know, um, because you could condition these animals in some way to, you know, you've got surfers there, mm-hmm. you've got people in the water, and we're really, really conservative with what we do um, when we're in state waters, you know. So I haven't done that personally, hmm. um, at least not um, here in, in Massachusetts. And I probably won't. Um, just because I think it just brings, you know, it's just perhaps the not, not the right thing to do right. in the, in, in so tight to these beaches. Makes sense. Are they still doing it in other countries and locations? Or yeah, they- it's very com- It's really commonly done in South Africa. Yep. Um, most of the, the ecotourism boats that are also taking people cage diving will, will, will tow, uh, decoys, surfboards, you know, seal decoys, um, to try to get those sharks to strike for photographic purposes, hmm. you know, so that does happen over there. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see both sides of that. I'm sure at some point you learned a good amount from doing that, but then it, I would think it would plateau out to the point that you really don't need to be doing it anymore. Yeah. I mean, you can learn a certain amount about right. the predatory strike behavior of these animals. Um, it's a little more challenging for white sharks in Cape Cod because it's so shallow. Mm. Um, whereas in, in, so the, the strike is more lateral, you know, coming, you know, from the side, um, in South Africa, those animals are in 60 to a hundred feet of water and they're waiting down at those depths for the silhouette. Again, they're, they're, they're waiting for the seals to come overhead and allows them to get great speed and momentum. Mm. And we've all seen them strike these seals. And in essence, what they're doing is they're pinning them against the surface because the seals are leaving or coming back to the island in order to, uh, you know, they go offshore to feed and then they come back. And when the shark pins the seal, its speed, it relies really heavily on, on stealth. So it, it does it with such speed and strength that it carries the shark completely out of the water. Wow. And that's why you get these really amazing, you know, missile launches and acrobatic displays from those sharks. It's incredible. <clears throat> Do you want him to try to adjust his, uh, Call her again. I think he's. I think you're all right, but yeah, you may have to go turtleneck, Greg. You might have to do it. Oh shit! Um, fi- you're fine though. The it'll we'll be able to figure it out in post. I have a great um, version of this question. I can't let go out of my brain right now. Okay. So we're talking about speed. <laughs> we're talking about stealth. We ask a similar question, or we've asked, we do a lot of tuna interviews. A lot of tuna interviews. Oh, great, great. Yeah, we used to do more. I used to do a lot with tuna. Yeah. Not so much anymore. But if you could have one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, or if you could because, have like one quality a shark has, perhaps, what would it be? I mean, Aquaman's got it made, right? Yeah, yeah. You so, you know, if I, could do, if I could do what Aquaman can do, that would be just absolutely phenomenal, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, you know, the guy can breathe underwater and move at great speed, you know. Right, yeah. Right. But I also, but I'm also, I also like flying. I think flying would be fantastic, mm. you know, because I am, after all, a terrestrial animal. And you know, if I could get over to Chatham 
you know, in 15 minutes because I flew there. And then I can survey around for white sharks and observe them from the from the air like we do with drones. Right. That would be absolutely really cool. It would be, you know. Um, because I don't know necessarily that I'd want to be swimming with a lot of those white sharks, even if I was Aquaman, um, down under the water while they're hunting seals. Mm, yeah. You know, that's interesting the, hearing that from him. It is. It definitely uh, solidifies my decision to never swim in the beach. Basically, so, here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically, yeah. what we're saying then is we want you want to be like a gannet. You want to be able to fly high. Go in the water for a That's brief a common period, answer. A brief period of time to see yeah. what's going on, but you don't really want to be down there very long. <laughs> right. I mean, with these sharks, absolutely. Yeah. But if I could fly to the canyons, oh, I yeah. mean that would be wild, wouldn't it? And then be able to go in the water with a school of hammerheads or whale sharks or tunas or yellowfins or whatever is going on out there, that would be great. I mean, instead of, you know, four hours in a boat steaming. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That would be cool. That's awesome. Um <laughs> <laughs> Gone through that. Our last kind of dovetail into the meat and potatoes is um, we know we've gone through how Jaws was a major inspiration for you and your career, and basically looking up to Matt Hooper and wanting to become him, which in our eyes you have become him. Um, but how did you become so passionate? I guess about the ocean and what you do. You know, taking Jaws out of the equation. Well, you, you got to think of it in terms of, you know, uh, Greg Skomal as a little kid, right? Mm. Y- you watch little kids play with plastic sharks or dinosaurs, and they're super excited, right? Now, imagine that little kid growing up and being able to continue to play with sharks. Um, that excitement really doesn't go away, you know, for many of us who, who are in this field. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a childhood dream. It's a passion. It's, it's really more of like, doing your what you love to do and getting paid to do it right which is you know a luxury mm. you know if you think about it you know how many people in this world get to do that and um you know a lot of fishermen i know have that same you know passion and you might take a little bit to to, to tap into it but they love doing what they do and if you love doing what you do those childhood characteristics or tendencies or emotions you know, continue to come out, even though you might be 60 years old, mm. you know? Um, so, you know, I, I love my job. I love, you know, being able to interact with these animals, study them, but I equally love producing information that would ultimately lead to, you know, sustainable conservation, you know, sustainable fisheries management, and even enhancing public safety, you know, which has become a really big part of what we're doing these days. You know, so, you know, it's just a matter of being passionate about, you know, what you love to do. You know, if if, let's say you love to ski, but you can't get a job doing it. But watch people who love to ski. They're they're having the time of their lives. You know, now imagine if you paid them to do that. They're even happier. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's your what's your favorite uh, thing to do? Uh, when it comes to researching sharks, is it is it being out there, tagging them, seeing them? Like, is there like a specific thing that when you wake up, it's like waking up Christmas morning? Well, I think every time I get on the boat, you know, um, you know, and you guys are passionate about fishing and other outdoor activities. You know, it's it's wake up in the morning saying, I'm going to go out today. I'm going to see a white shark, you know, um, and that's just the white shark project. You know, we do 
you know, and that gets a lot of attention, obviously, but I'm involved in a number of research projects, you know, tagging tiger sharks in the Caribbean, hammerheads in the Florida Keys, you know, getting up in the morning and knowing that that day you're going out and you're going to, you know, catch a shark, you're going to put tags on it. You know, that's really riveting stuff. That's, that's super exciting to me, you know, um, Maybe not equally as exciting, but also very rewarding is you know, looking at data coming back from these tags, you know, and seeing patterns um, that uh, tell us about how this animal lives, you know, is is really cool. You know, right. you know discovering, for example, that they live, you know, over 70 years. I mean, that's really cool. You know, that's that's rewarding. That's insane. To me. You know, that no one would have dreamed that, you know, but that's really, you know, that's like, wow, that's a really cool fact. Mm, And you helped produce that fact. You know, that's, that's fantastic. Do you want a tangent down there? Yeah, go for it. How, how did you, how did you guys prove that fact? Like, how did you come up with that fact? You know, and almost everything I, you know, I I might use I and me a a few times, but it really is a we, you know, there's, uh, I, I, I collaborate with lots of great scientists and everything we do is team oriented. You know, I sometimes become the face of that team, but in terms of like the age of growth work, we partnered with scientists at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution who did some really interesting, you know, carbon based, uh, dating, um, bomb carbon based dating on shark vertebrae that we had sampled many, many, many years ago. I partnered with the National Marine Fisheries Service scientist as well as part of that study. And by looking at the components of the vertebrae of the shark, the backbone of the shark, we were able to estimate longevity, you know, get longevity estimates, mm-hmm. minimum ages and showing that, God, this animal had to have lived over 70 years. And then we can count rings in the vertebrae, which you would very similar to counting rings on a, a tree, Three, a little right. bit more, a little more complicated, but getting a sense of how that animal grew over time and how old those specific individuals were and, and, and developing growth curves. Hmm. And so it, it really is a, a, a multifaceted task with various experts coming to the table to produce this synergy of good science. It's wild. How many years did that take to, to come to fruition? <clears throat> Well, what, you know, once you collect the vertebrae and, and that's the hard part, white sharks nowadays are prohibited from retention. So it's not like I can go out and kill a white shark and take its backbone. But fortunately, (laughs) you know, the National Marine Fisheries Service program in Narragansett, Rhode Island, the the shark tagging program there, they've been, and I used to work there, they, they've been sampling backbones from, uh, you know, dozens of shark species going back to the early sixties, 1960s. Wow. So, you know, we had this cache of of 100 plus backbones, you know, going back to that time that we could look at, you know, and then once you start looking at them, you're talking about probably, you know, a couple of years of work going into that. Now, compared to like tiger sharks and mako sharks and other, uh, I guess, local um, sought after sharks, <clears throat> do white sharks live much longer than those species? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, perhaps twice as long. Wow. You know, we know that we know Makos will get up over 30 years old. You know, tigers will get up, you know, into their 20s. Um, but that kind of longevity we're seeing in these white sharks is fairly unique in the shark world. Hmm. You wonder why. There are exceptions. You know, Greenland sharks have been estimated to live over 300 years. Right. 
It's because they're frozen. Wait, that's because they're, they're frozen, frozen time. carbonite up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have, they have got, you seen those sharks? I'm assuming. <clears throat> yeah, back in the uh, late '90s, I did a big research project in the Arctic Circle where we were diving under six feet of frozen ice. Oh my God, which nope. the living crap I'm out all of set me. with that. Yeah. yeah. And as a kid, I said I'd never do that. As a young diver, in the, I, I got certified in the 70s. But um, I said, no, that's, that's the one diving I won't do. That and cave diving. I'm not super interested in cave diving. But, you know, 20 years later, I find myself under six feet of Arctic ice down 50 feet with a, you know, a nine foot Greenland shark, you know, <laughs> no, myself, you know the hell am I doing? went through your head at that oh, moment. Scared to death. <laughs> oh. That is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, oh. Fun times, fun times. Um, on the topic of white shark age, moving to size, you've probably been asked this thousands of times, but what is the largest white shark you've seen? This episode is brought to you by Rodan Marine Systems. Technology in the marine industry seems to be improving at an exponential rate from year to year. And Rodan Marine is at the forefront of the GPS anchor and trolling motor industry. We've been running a Rodan GPS anchor on our 30-foot center console for a few seasons now, and it's been a game changer. With quick deployment and the simple push of a button, you can anchor down on a spot and stay within a few feet of your target location without having to deal with a traditional anchor, 20-plus feet of heavy chain, 400 feet of anchor line, obviously depending on how your setup is, but it's just very, very convenient and accurate. The fishing applications for using a Rodan are really endless. We find it extremely useful for both our inshore striped bass fishing as well as our offshore tuna fishing. And the customer service and support at Rodan is amazing. They offer overnight shipping on parts and are available to troubleshoot any issues that you might have. We've put close to a thousand hours on our motor and have had next to no issues. Any problems or questions that we've had, the team at Rodan responded quickly and has had parts to us the next day. If you're interested in taking the next step on improving your boat's anchoring system and giving yourself an advantage when it comes to fishing, make sure you check out Rodan Marine Systems line of GPS anchors. Visit RodanMarine.com to check them out. Yeah, I mean, the the largest I've seen in the Atlantic has to be uh, a shark we named Curly. And Curly was 18 feet long and feeding on a dead whale about uh, 15 miles east of Chatham in 2010. And uh, I got I get reports of dead whales. So we went out there, found it, and uh, I actually went diving with that shark in a cage, though. And... <clears throat> just an amazing animal and you know you've heard this before but it's it's really the girth that's most impressive on mm. these sharks because you know if you take a tape measure and measure it around it's like eight to ten feet around you know uh, and about like four feet wide and it's just a, a massive animal and, and you look at that and you think in terms of the power because about you know 65 70 percent of that animal is is going to be muscle right yeah. and so you know like like a lot of big fish and so it's just absolutely amazing to be to see and to be around one of those animals that's incredible do you, 
Go ahead. Do you see, um, I mean, we see it with bluefin, you know, pretty much every species that, every highly migratory species that we have up here, but do you see a lot of changes in their body type size when they migrate into our waters in May time and then when they leave in December? Like, is it... Are they gaining weight? Are they gaining weight or do they maintain that girth and mass when... You know, when they get to a specific age and it doesn't really differ all that much in, in your observations. That that's hard. I, I can't I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Um it's hard for us to gauge that. If like in tunas, you know, because there's such a you know, there's a big fishery for them. Right. You know, and 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 harpooners may get them in June and then we may get them, you guys might get them in in October, November. You know, you could really see the changes in fat content as these animals become, you know, uh, just bulk up. Um, white sharks, because we we just don't have the ability. First of all, you don't see the fat content yeah. in sharks like you do with tunas. You know, you just don't. Um, and then it's really hard. The best way to do that would be to 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 look at liver fat, for example, in, in sharks. So if you start killing a bunch of makos in, in June... And then you, you start killing a bunch of makos in October, you might be able to see changes in their, in their fat content in the liver and size of their liver. Cause that's where they tend, that's where they store fat as opposed to in their bodies, mm-hmm. in their muscle. And, and so you could do that kind of work, um, with white sharks because there's no fishery for them. You know, you got to look at them and say, all right, is the girth bigger on that fish than it was when we saw it two months ago? Yeah. It's really, really hard to gauge. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it would be. But I suspect they do bulk up. Yeah. You know, I, I suspect that when they migrate up here in late May, early June, uh, after spending the winter off of the southeastern U.S., you know, they're probably, you know, lacking in terms of body condition. Um, and, and then by the end of, you know, November, early December, when they're leaving, you know, they will have fed on all the resources we've got here in New England in the summertime, which includes, you know, scavenging dead whales, you know, seal species, and then, you know, other species of fish. What's their primary diet, uh, Southeast of, uh, Florida. Good, good southeast of Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. Southeast, you know, basically South of Hatteras, <laughs> okay. you know, so they'll overwinter South of Hatteras and we think they feed on anything from dolphins and porpoises scavenging whale carcasses which they will absolutely take advantage of anytime they can right um to a variety of fish species which could be anything from you know other sharks to to snappers drums you name it hmm. so it's a it's a much broader uh diet with a, a high diversity of species interesting now they, the seals seem like they're here almost year-round correct oh, they are. In, in our they're here year-round in our water so why, why aren't is it based purely off of the water temperature, whether or not the white sharks aren't here year round? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely. I mean, their food their food is here in great abundance, right? Year round, you know. And when I say here, I don't only mean you know Cape Cod, but all the way up to the Gulf of Maine and Canadian right. waters. I mean, that's where the bulk of the gray and harbor seal population mm-hmm. is, you know. And you're talking in the case of the gray seal, probably in excess of five hundred thousand animals, and so. Um, Plenty to eat, but our water temperatures just chill off too much. And right. even though white sharks have the capacity to retain body heat and elevate their body temperature, they can't push beyond, you know, once temperatures drop below 50, 
you know, 48, 47 degrees, we'll see them getting out of here. Yeah, just like tunas, it sounds like. Almost the same so the, migration in and out of this area. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, huh. yeah, pretty much. Interesting. With the tunas we've noticed, I mean, we're not scientists, but <laughs> we've, no, we've noticed their migration in that threshold, at least according to our sound or instruments on the boat, is definitely seems to be in that 50 to 55 degree range. And then when they leave, they seem to be able to tolerate just sub 50 degrees before they actually leave. Like they have more, they have more, yeah. t- more tolerance on the migration out than on the migration 46, in. 47 probably. Yeah. 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 Are you talking, um, sea surface temperature? Yeah. Right. Sea surface temperature. Yeah. So yeah. subsurface, it's probably the same. Yeah. I mean, it, it, early in the season, you're going to have a, probably a pretty good thermocline that's right. going to break up over the course of the summer and that and that warmer water will penetrate deeper uh by the end of the summer and so you know those those fish will you know, just like the sharks you know they're gonna you really have to think in terms of the the, the entire water column right mm-hmm. um in terms of arrival and departure times and i think uh we, you know we'll see the, the the latest we've seen white sharks stick around is generally uh 17th 18th 19th of december you know where i think you can get tunas a little bit later than that yeah yeah we're you know they they were basically catching them in up until christmas almost in yeah the new yeah. years there were a, hand, of a handful of fish up in jeffrey's that were caught on new year's when the quota reopened the start of the year yeah and they've got a really efficient i mean when it comes to bluefin tuna they're one of the most advanced species of fish on the planet. And so they've got a really highly evolved uh, endothermic system, which means that they can retain body heat, uh, not only um, in their viscera, but in their muscles, but also uh, in their brain and eyes. So they, they probably have a greater capacity to tolerate cold water than, uh, than the white shark does. Have you ever been to North Lake, Prince Edward Island? I have not, no. I'm going to text you after this podcast a very scientific um, image of a bluefin tuna that labels all of their parts, and you will get an absolute kick out of it. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'll, I'll send, send, that, to you send after, that to me, I'll guys. send it That'd to you great. after this, absolutely. They actually had quite a few white sharks this year. They did, there, right? yeah. And they had some some fish, you know, Swimming their fish, they they are not allowed to harvest as many as we are, so they you know take real pride in their product up there. And there's quite a few that were you know lost to shark attacks, swimming them, getting the lactic acid out. I feel like it's more and more every year, especially up it, there. It is. It appears to be absolutely, and and I think that's tightly linked to a a, a couple of things. But um, first of all, the based on work we did now back in 2014. It really looks like the white shark population took a hit in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And then now with, the first of all, the prohibition on retention in 97 and the fact that we've really, you know, over the course of the last 20 years, have pulled a lot of hooks out of the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, our longline fishery has been severely diminished. Um, gillnet fisheries have been uh, diminished. And, um, and even our hook and line fisheries have been diminished in terms of quotas and those kinds of things. And that has allowed the white shark population now to respond to protection. And, and it's growing along the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and Canada. You know, hmm. that coupled with the fact that you've got, 
this growing seal population that they're taking notice of. So right. that's drawing them closer to shore where they're going to interact more with other fisheries mm-hmm. and with people. Yeah. And so we've got the combination of a growing white shark population and a shift in distribution in response to this, you know, massive food resource that's piled up on the shoreline where we're going to see more and more white sharks, not only here in New England, the Gulf of Maine, but up to Canada. Well, that basically answers that that question about, you know, do you think that the population is increasing or do you think our science is getting better? Um, you you truly think it's increasing? I, I actually do. Yeah. 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 And that's based on the best available science. You know, my yeah. Canadian colleagues are seeing more white sharks, you know, and obviously we're seeing more white sharks. My spotter pilots who I've worked with for a very long time and have been doing this since the early tuna days of purse um, they're seeing more white sharks and Christ, the, those guys are 70 years old. So, Something you know, like I, I trust, you know, I, you guys probably know this. I, I work with commercial and recreational fishermen have been doing that my whole career. And I, and I trust their observations and their eyes, you know, in many cases, a lot more than I would trust perhaps fellow scientists. This episode is also brought to you by LT Marine Products. Since 2011, LT Marine has been designing and developing innovative, unique, and high-quality American-made sport fishing equipment. Taylor and I have known the crew at LT since they started. Chris is a great guy. Uh, we've been using every single piece of equipment um, that he's that he's made over the last several years. Um, his rod holders are extremely heavy-duty and high-quality. He has the machining equipment to be able to put your boat name on the face plates um, and do other custom work as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and recently, over the last couple of years, we've worked with him to develop some new products that have actually been very popular amongst the the Northeast um, Northeast fishermen, specifically offshore and uh, and tuna fishermen. So two of those products have been his uh his swim hook for if you're harvesting a big big giant tuna um you know you want to take care of that fish as as best you can prior to bringing him on board and part of that process is after the fight swimming the fish you know for a certain amount of time kind of depending on the health of the fish and and how the fight went but usually ends up being around an hour to get all the lactic acid out of the muscles and and give a, a better product at the end of the day when we when we sell our when we sell our fish. So we helped him design a, an affordable swim hook to be able to tow the fish behind the boat at a low speed <clears throat> and and accomplish that goal. So um, that was a pretty cool product that we that we collaborated on. And another one is uh, the new LT Marine uh, release hook. We've been doing. A lot of release fishing for giants uh, over the last couple of years with the way that the quota, the quota has been open and closed. So we've really had a need for a way to properly revive these fish and get them back into, uh, into good health upon release. So um, if you go on the LT Marine website, you can see the release hook there. Uh, you can also go on our Instagram, Facebook, and see how we have it rigged. But it's a it's a tool that we've implemented 
um, into our our process aboard our boats, and and it um, it makes releasing fish a lot safer for the crew, a lot better for the fish, and um, it's a really high quality product. Um, we used it all season, never had a problem, never broke it. So definitely check out that new that new release hook um, from LT. Or if you want to see any of Chris's products, visit ltmarineproducts.com. Please make sure you use the promo code CBROS for 10% off your next order. Doing those uh, spotter plane uh, white shark searches around our area in Massachusetts, what's like your typical day? Are you seeing... Are you seeing patterns where you see them come in certain areas, you know that they show up certain times of the day in certain areas on certain tides, or is it very random, um, you know, just a section of beach they randomly roam in and roam out? Yeah, we've been, uh, since, since we've been doing this so long and we've put out a lot of tags, we now have amassed, you know, a lot of data. So... This has allowed us to uh, to better answer that question. So, we what we're what we're using to do that is our acoustic database. So, with the way the acoustic tags work, and we've put out you know over two hundred um, of those, is they emit high frequency sounds that are picked up by an array of receivers that we've put out all over Massachusetts. And what that allows us to do is is model you know, when these sharks are close to shore and in certain areas, is it driven by tide? Is it driven by time of day? Is it driven by lunar cycle? Um, and we've just recently, and I say we, because almost all of this work is being done by Atlantic White Shark Conservancy scientist, Megan Winton, who's also getting her PhD based on this science. Um, she's done a whole bunch of modeling over the last several months. And we're really seeing that there's no solid pattern, you know, that we could look at. And, and that's really frustrating for us. We're seeing a lot of individual behaviors. Like we might have one shark that only comes in to Cape Cod shallow areas, you know, during the daytime. And then we'll have another shark that comes in only at night. You know, we do see that there's a scene. Yeah. That's insane to me. And, And that really screws up science because, it just means there's no pattern that works for the whole species. You know, you guys know as a, as fishermen that you're targeting, you know, you might be targeting bluefin at slack tide, or right. you, you may, you may be doing certain things certain times of the year. Cause you know, the bluefin are doing that with white sharks. We're not seeing those kinds of patterns, hmm. you know, where tides not making much of a difference. Um, we're seeing a subtle correlation with the lunar cycle where, we're seeing perhaps a, a slightly more sharks at a new moon coming in close to the shore, you know, which is, you know, might be counterintuitive where the sharks, uh, you'd expect them to be using a full moon to their advantage, trying to hunt seals, but perhaps they're, they're, they're relying on total darkness to help disguise them yeah. right. from the seals. Um, but it's been a little bit frustrating. So we keep doing this. We keep, we treat, keep adding different <laughs> variables to see if anything comes out relative to this near shore behavior, what we can say is they're spending almost half their time in water less than 15 feet deep. And so that, that's pretty interesting. That's, because al- if, that's alarming. We huh? saw that stat this morning we did. and we, we were, our yeah, eyes were I almost, almost popped out of my coffee. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's got people freaking out a little bit, and I don't blame them. You know, so if I'm managing a beach, you know, if I'm managing Nauset Beach, I'm thinking, all right, there's a 50 chance, 50% chance that any one of these sharks is going to be in shallow water um, any given time. That's a pretty high proportion of time. Right. You know, and people need to take that into consideration. And And how many, I know you can't answer this, but out of your experience, how many sharks are uh, on a given week or a given month, different sharks are coming up to Massachusetts waters, or I guess if you want to separate it from Chatham to in the Bay, are you seeing any kind of uh, repeat sharks year after year? Are you seeing it, uh, you know, increase certain times of the year in inside and outside the Bay? I know there's a lot of questions kind of raveled into one, but no, it's a good question, and it's one we're we're working on pretty intensively. And again, Megan, is, it's all part of her dissertation, her her PhD research, in terms of quantifying, you know, what these animals are doing and how many are there. And we get repeat customers every year, sometimes as high as you know fifty, sixty percent of what we're seeing are, are animals we've already seen before. Hmm. Right. But each year we're also recruiting new individuals. And so for five years, we went out and intensively tried to find every shark we could, you know, any given day. And, 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 and we'd go up to 20, 30 individual sharks in a, in a given day. And we'd be able to determine who is that shark based on color patterns, scarring patterns, fin shapes, or, or the presence of tags. Hmm. And so. We've cataloged well over 500 individual sharks over the course of that five-year period. Now, the thing is, they're not all there any given day, right. you know, uh, and that changes, you know, over the course of the season, you know, er, and, and think of it as a, bell ca- a bell-shaped curve, you know, early on, you know, you're not getting a lot of sharks. They kind of trickle in. Um, so late May, most of June, there's not a lot of sharks around. July, it starts to ramp up, and that and it'll ramp up depending on water temperature and how fast that changes. Um, and then August, September, October are really peak months. That's when we see the most sharks here. And then they start to leave in October, and by early November, a lot of them have gone. You know, they bugged out. Usually, as we start to get those northeast winds, you know, and those storm events move through, yeah. those sharks just don't stick around. And then by mid December, they're gone. And so, you know, now we're taking those seed numbers, you know, 500 plus individuals, and we're going to extrapolate that to the population size. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean 5,000 fish? Does that mean, you know, 1,000 fish? And it's probably, you know, somewhere in between. But we're, we're doing that now. We're hoping actually to get that done in the next couple of months. That's awesome. We'd, we'd be interested to see that. We would. We pause this episode for a quick announcement for one of our good friends um, and fellow charter captains, Jesse Martello. Uh, Jesse's son, Jesse Jr., uh, was recently diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia called T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And while the outlook for Jesse is optimistic, the battle is just beginning. Um, The doctor's initial prognosis indicates that Jesse Jr. is in for a fight that could last three years with chemotherapy and many hospital ver- visits during what should be the prime years of his youth. And um, Jesse's an avid fisherman. He mates regularly for his dad um, in their charter business, Think Big Charters, aboard their, aboard their boat, Necessary Expense. They fish from Connecticut um, to the Northeast Canyons. Uh, they tuna fish. They're 
They're a part of um, our community, and and they're great people. Um, Jesse Jr. also enjoys playing soccer, basketball, lacrosse. He races go-karts. Um, he skis. He snowmobiles. It's, it's really sad that he has to deal with this um, at this point in his life. But we're here to support Jesse, and we're hoping that um, you all can take a moment and, and help support him as well. Uh, right now, Jesse's family faces uncertainty with medical costs and other financial burdens associated with treating this disease. And to help ease the burden, there's been a website that's been set up to help facilitate fundraising efforts and help aid Jesse Jr.'s family and the entire Martello family with expenses that they're going to face during this battle. So if you take a moment and visit thinkbigjesse.com, that's thinkbigjesse.com. Starting on February 15th, there's going to be a series of raffles and auctions for some some really great um, items and some charters, um, pen and real easy custom rods. They're donating reels, rods, many other sponsors and supporters on there. Um, many of which have sponsored and supported the podcast as well. And um, we just hope you take a moment to, to go on the website and support and support a great cause for a great kid. So again, visit thinkbigjesse.com and, uh, and feel free to donate and participate in any of the, the raffles and the, um, the silent auctions. Are you noticing any, um, any patterns with the juvenile great white sharks in particular in the bay? Yeah. I mean, the bay, the bay is definitely a phenomenon that, uh, we, we relied quite heavily on the, the charter fleet and the private boat fleet that, that, that pounds the bay and uh they you know you saw you saw what they've been seeing you know in terms of uh, social media posts and we decided that we were going to start spending a little more time in the bay ourselves and they do tend to be smaller individuals younger sharks likely feeding on bass and other fish species you know uh up on the shoals in the bay and um that's exactly what the charter captains have been seeing um we've tagged a few sharks up in the bay we spent a bit of time in the bay in 2019. We went to the bay a little bit in 2021. We did not get into the bay, um, largely because of weather, but also uh, limitations related to other aspects of, of vessel issues. Um, but I'm still hoping to spend more time in the bay. We found that the Brewster Flats and Billingsgate Shoal were the hot spots in the bay. Wow. Which is exactly what the charter captains were telling us, reeling in bass on those areas and having them uh, parted off. We expect smaller fish will target the bass because that's exactly what they do. Um, juveniles will feed almost exclusively on fish unless there's a, a whale carcass or a dead seal. They're just not capable of targeting seals at that smaller size, smaller being less than, say, nine feet long. Um, that's actually will... sur- it's kind of surprising to me, though, because you'd think they'd be faster. They'd be able to catch the seals easier, maim them, and then eat them. Yeah, but they're, they're what, what's kind of interesting, white sharks kind of have a, a go through a puberty, you know, if you will. Hmm. You know, when they're kind of skinny, fast, small, um, even their tooth shape is like a mako tooth. It's sharply hmm. pointed and really good for grabbing squid, fish, you know, chomping them in half grabbing them, swallowing them whole, 
you know, so they'll target those schooling fishes, striped bass, uh, a lot of bottom fish, mm. maybe hakes and, uh, and ground fish. Um, but as they go through this puberty, even their body shape changes, you know, they get muscular, far more muscular. The, the, the muscles supporting their jaws become bulkier and stronger and they lose those baby teeth and they start getting that nicely triangular serrated cutting tool, which is perfect for, for dispatching a seal or gouging hunks of flesh out of a dead whale. And so their body shape allows cool. them to become stronger. And, and, and remember, seals don't just say, uh, shit, you got me. Right. I'm just dying. Yeah. Yeah. Fight they for their fight lives. back. Yeah. yeah. You know, they got, they got teeth and they got sharp claws. And so a lot of those big white sharks that we see have big rake marks on them hmm. around their head, their gills as these seals fight back. So, the, so the, the smaller white sharks just don't, although they have the speed, they don't have the capacity to kill a, you know, two, three, four, 500 pound seal. It's amazing. The back to your Billingsgate shoal, um, comment actually in 2019 we were a part of that fleet down there and i specifically remember we were out the day before you guys went in there and I, my numbers are probably wrong but you, it was i probably want to say you several days several days before a day or two before yeah we the bass fishing was excellent it was awesome quality fish <coughs> fish it was a pretty decent troll bite in the morning. And then the fish kind of settled through as the day went on. We were chumming live bait fishing. When we were chumming live bait fishing, we had marks on the screen that looked like tuna marks. You know, we're like, there's no way these are bass. And then fast forward a day or two later, you guys go in there. And I think you tagged, you know, at least a half a dozen sharks in there um, on the shoal, which is absolutely crazy to me that they it were is. just in there the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mo the most we've tagged in there is four. So, but we saw quite a few. Yeah, and we saw previously tagged fish, and we know from our tagging data that um, those sharks that we tag on the outer cape will come into the bay. They don't go as tight to shore as they do um, on the outer cape because the seals just aren't piled up in the big numbers until you get to like Jeremy Point or inside uh, Provincetown Harbor. Mm. Um, but, you know, they will work the shoals, you know, even those bigger slobs and the bigger slobs will go out to Stellag and Bank. You know, last summer we had a um, a dead whale up on the southwest corner of Stellag. Yeah, we saw that and, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and and the three sharks that came to that whale were all giant females, you know, in the 15, 16 foot range, um, which we don't really see tight to the beaches on the outer cape. And so those big, those bigger sharks are probably targeting bluefin. They may be sucking up a bunch of small fish, uh, bottom fish, maybe eating other sharks. They love dogfish. Mm -hmm. They will eat lots of spiny dogs. Um, and then they're looking for whale carcasses, you know, cause they feast on a whale carcass over the course of a day. You know, they'll eat 50, 60 pounds of blubber. They probably don't have to eat for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow. Right. And so it's worth it for them just to spend their time. You know, instead of battling the currents, the shoals, sandbars, and surf zone, you know, trying to get seals, stay out offshore, wait for the seals to come to you, and look for dead whales, you know? And those, and then why not work the edges of Billingsgate, you know, and then, you know, where those smaller sharks are? Maybe even try to take, take down one of those smaller sharks. Yeah, have you seen you know? the bigger females eat smaller great whites? We, we haven't seen that, you know, because I just haven't, you know, I haven't. 
I haven't dissected enough big white right. sharks. You know, we just don't have access to those yeah. specimens. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna do more and more drone work, and I think that's where we're gonna see this kind of behavior. And, and have you seen the white sharks push other sharks away? Like, are the makos, the the threshers, the poor beagles scared of the white sharks, or do they kind of commingle? Well, the only place we get to see them, you know, interact is on dead whales. You know, the a dead whale will will draw lots of blue dogs. Right. You know. Um, not so much poor beagles and makos. Makos pretty much are offshore fish. You know, they they rarely come inside. You know, three miles. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't even. They're not even. They're not even really well adapted for for scavenging whales. You know, they will take down dolphins and porpoises. They absolutely will do that. And I think they'll take an occasional seal offshore. Um, big makos. Uh, and big makos will take down other sharks. I've, I've taken blue sharks out of the bellies of, of makos, big makos, yeah, well, nine, nine, sure we had that happen makos. once. I think we had that happen once out, uh, on wildcat. Actually, I had a blue shark but, get eaten. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um, but when a, when a big white shark's working a dead whale, you know, the blue sharks will def- definitely stay away from it and stay below it. Huh. But, but the the blue sharks aren't all that stupid. The white shark will come up and rip a big hole in that whale. And the teeth of the white shark, like I said, are really good for that. And then the blue sharks will grab the snacks, the, the scraps, right? They'll come up and start working that same hole that the white shark tore open. But the white shark comes back in, the blue sharks will go back down. And then they'll, they'll pick up the little scraps that are falling from the whale carcass as the, the bigger white sharks tear it apart. So they've got this kind of mutual agreement where, you know, you big boys have at it, you know, we'll stay out of your way. We'll eat the popcorn. Maybe we can come in and eat a little steak every now and then, but yeah. we'll stay low, stay out of your way. And I haven't <laughs> seen the, I haven't seen the white shark go after the blues. Wow. They taste disgusting. I don't know what would ever want to eat a blue shark anyways. On the urine, uh, you know, the, skin. The, por- the Portuguese, the Portuguese eat them. Really? Yeah, there's wow. and the Spanish. Yeah, there's big fisheries for blue sharks in the Mid Atlantic by those countries. Hmm. They must cook them away. I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> I think they dry a lot of it. Yeah, they salt okay. it. They salt it like cod, you know, and they which I think ruins cod. But that's beside the point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's your favorite fish to eat? Oh, I lo- I love any of the ground fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love cod, haddock. You know, pollock. I'll eat. Love it. I love. Um, yeah, I, I like to fish Buzzards Bay, even though even though I've been living here ten years, I'm still trying to learn it. Um, I keep my boat not too far from my house here, and uh, um, I'll eat everything. Yeah, most anything from fluke to bass to I love black sea bass. You know, most species here in New England, and even a fresh bluefish. Boy, I love it. Yeah, you still get you still get out fishing yourself quite a bit, or are you still tied up in research and shark tagging? Well, I. You know, I, I went through this phase where I, when I lived on the vineyard, I lived on the vineyard for 20 years um, and uh, I was really into fishing and had a boat out there and fished with all my buddies. And we were, you know, year round, we fished for something, you know, and, you know, whether it was mackerels coming into Menemsha or, or squid, you know, we'd be jigging stuff and, you know, almost year round. Well, in the winter, we went to we went to shellfish, you know, yeah. scallops and, and clams um then i moved off and uh you know fishing i was doing a lot of fishing for work you know when we were doing all our tuna work you know we, we were targeting everything from you know yellowfin to bluefins to to sharks and so 
almost fishing became like work to me. And um, then I started doing more of the white shark stuff, tagging free swimming fish. And then I had kids and now the kids want to fish. So that's drawing me back into it. That's cool. And so the last three or three to five years, I've been doing a lot more fishing. Uh, You know, I went out and bought a whaler and uh, used, of course. (laughs) And and now, you know, I fish all over the bay trying to find a good spot for fluke or black sea bass, you know, all that stuff, you know, occasionally run to the islands and mess around there. But I do, I do because the kids are into it. They've really brought me back full circle into loving fishing. That's awesome. Any, any catches, stories, lost fish that just forever branded in your, in your mind or? Uh, mostly, mostly associated with, with big, big fish fishing in the, in the old days, you know, you know, the big bluefin, you know, you guys, you guys do it, you know, the big bluefins that got away, you know, um, you know, the yellow fins that get away, the canyon fish, the marlins, you know, lost a bunch of marlin in my years. We were blood sampling marlin for a study we were doing back in the nineties, um, and sampling big blue marlin and white marlins. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I'd travel to fish for various TV shows we were doing or, uh, projects we were doing, you know, fish in the Gulf of Mexico on, uh, uh, you know, where the, where they're, where they're drilling for oil on those big, uh, big rigs and, and trying to get yellow fins. Oh man. You know, all sounds like stories. you miss it a little bit. <laughs> I, do. Yeah. I do. I do miss some of this stuff, you know, or try to get big bull sharks, you know, God. Yeah. What, yeah, what do you, what, sorry, to, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm thinking of it and I don't want to forget it. What, um, other than a great white, what shark, actually, I'm going to get rid of tiger shark as well. Cause I think that was mm-hmm. the answer in one of your uh, YouTube videos, but what sharks, uh, do you feel are the most dangerous shark? Well, you know, when I talk about shark, shark danger, uh, you know, I, I, I go right to the statistics, just like an insurance agent would, right? Yeah. You know, which is why 16-year-olds have to pay so much for insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you know, bull sharks. So it's, it's always going to be the tiger, the bull, and the white shark. Those mm-hmm. are the, the top three implicated in the most attacks on humans over in, in history. And so, you know, I really do think that the bull shark is, is a badass because it's, it's like that, you know, that kid in high school that you look at him and you say, can't believe that kid's a bully. Cause he's, he's not as big as the other bullies, you know, yeah. the, the white and the tiger are big fish that feed on big things. And so they screw up, you know, um, bull sharks almost just like do it because they have an attitude. You know, now bulls can get big. I've been in the water with really big bull sharks, but they, they got a territorial aspect to them. They're all fired up and, and, um, and they're a bit scary because they're, I think they're a bit more unpredictable than the tiger and the white, you know, and, um, I, I, uh, I get, I get a little edgy with, with bull sharks Hmm. and, uh, um, and had my share of doing stuff with them. And I think it's really cool, cool stuff I have done and and enjoyed being in the water with them, but I'm always like watching my back because I just don't know when they're gonna like lose it and, and, and go for you. But yeah, the bull is the one that, um, I'd be most nervous probably with. Huh. Longboat key bridge. Oh, Gosh, we we spent some time down in Anna Marie Island and Longboat Key fishing, family and all that down there. And there's that bridge and inlet down there. And as young kids, we never really understood how 
many, many shark. bull sharks and sharks can be in that inlet <clears throat> until we went fishing there with our buddy and it took approximately seven seconds to hook one. Yeah. 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 And the, 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 the charter guys hate those damn things down there. They're a pain in the ass for them, you know, especially if they're tarpon fishing or whatever, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing a big study, uh, down in the keys now with hammerheads. Um, we were going to involve bulls, but mostly just hammerheads and tarpon. And it's, uh, it's, a it's a, it's a big of a bit of a problem down there because, the tarpon fishermen trying to bring in their tarpon and uh, the, the big hammerheads, the great hammerheads are chewing them in half. Right. And uh, that makes for a bad day. It does. It's crazy with the new electronics and stuff too and side scan and watching some of these guys <laughs> fish for tarpon on the beach and actually marking those great hammerheads just outside the school. It's it's pretty wild. Sounds to, like the white sharks with the seals. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. 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 And those white sharks will challenge themselves to get as close as they can, you know, and, um, some of them have screwed up to the point where they get beached, Really, you know, but it doesn't happen as much as it used to, which is really wild to me because they've, they've apparently figured it out. But, um, you know, in the early years, you know, of, of doing this, meaning 2010, 11, 12, 13, we would see white sharks, you know, high and dry on the beach. Um, cause they, they screwed up trying to get to their, you know, Scooby snack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before I ask that, I got one question. Um, you've done filming in everywhere. Uh, what are some, or f- pick a few places that, you know, uh, you would say are your highlights of your career as far as filming and locations and the people and, and the sharks or, or any fish that you've done. I mean, you fish for, for, you know, film for shark week and, and done all that. What's, what are some of the stories or some people that you've met along the way that, um, you know, yeah, have been I important mean, in your life? Yeah. I mean, uh, so, you know, one, one of the studies I did with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution was, uh, and this wasn't a film project was, was actually, um, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, wow. which was really you know, this was, this was back in, um, 2012, 13, 14. Um, we were, we were studying whale sharks and, and, and the Red Sea, we we're on the Red Sea side of things. It's, it's just an amazing place, um, for all kinds of fish from tunas to sharks. And we were doing a, a whale shark project. So I have to say that that was a really interesting place to work from a cultural perspective, because we all have, you know, we, you know, we all, we all have pre, preconceived notions based right. from what we've learned here in the U.S. about Saudi Arabia. So you go there and you, you, you'd be crazy if you're not scared to death, you know, from a cultural point of view. But, you know, actually living there for weeks and, and working with locals and it, it was really quite fascinating. And, and, and I got a better understanding of their culture. Um, but also being able to go diving every day in the Red Sea with whale sharks and tunas and other species of sharks and coral reef fishes was absolutely stunning, you know. Hmm. Um, but some of my favorite film projects, I already talked a little bit about Greenland sharks. That was actually a film project up in the Arctic Circle. And I got to say that as, it, as cold as it was and as frightening as it was, it was really amazing um, to be in remote areas and working with you know, local Inuit people who are our guides and bring us living on the ice, bring us out to the ice and diving under the ice with really strange creatures like Greenland sharks. 
you know, just amazing. And, uh, but I think what I love most is going to tropical areas, you know, and, and diving with sharks. And so bimini diving with, with hammerheads and bulls was amazing. Um, and then off Grand Bahama Island is a place called Tiger Beach. We made a film there and I was diving at, at one point with five or six species of sharks, including tigers, hammerheads, bulls, lemons, and nurse sharks wow. and, and Caribbean reef sharks. So six species of sharks all circling me um, <laughs> in crystal clear water <laughs> in 30 feet and just hunkered down with a little GoPro, you know, wow. go, <laughs> that that's like a childhood dream come true. I mean, just spectacular. You know, if, if someone says to me, I want to go diving with sharks and I can only do one trip before I die, I would probably send them to Tiger Beach um, in the Bahamas just because of the diversity of species, the conditions, the temperature of the water. It's shallow, so you don't have to be a deep diver to do it. Um, just, just stunning. You know, and the Bahamian people are just really cool. You know, yeah. and, and all of the Bahamas is a shark sanctuary. So it's like, you know, it's just fantastic. And so, you know? so is, um, Hawaii now, correct? Didn't they just pass yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Hawaii's, you know, another great place to go diving with sharks, you know, Hawaii. Um, at one point in my career, I went to this tiny atoll, which was 800 miles south of Hawaii. It was back when I was doing my PhD and, um, that's called Johnston Atoll. And it was just loaded with uh, Galapagos sharks and um, white tip reefs, uh, gray reef sharks, white tip reef sharks, just incredible reefs. Hmm. That was stunning. You know, I, I just love tropical areas. It's, war- <laughs> it's it warm. Is. And the older I get, the more I want to just be in warm water. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, New Englanders were kind of used to the no, the low visibility, but boy, uh, the older I get, the more I just don't want to dive in it. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you're safer in those clearer waters? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I do. Um, you know, and it all has to do with the species, too, you're dealing with. Right. You know, I think tigers, for the most part, are, you know, it's when it comes to shark attack, it really boils down to the sharks you don't see. Right. Remember, for a shark to successfully attack and kill something, it needs to use speed and stealth. It's an ambush predator, you know, and bulls might be your only exception. But the big tiger shark swimming around in front of you is going to be like a big St. Bernard. Right. You know, it's just checking out whatever chum you got. And it's just it might even let you pet it, you know, even though I tend not to want to do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're just big, lazy slobs. You know, it's the shark that's coming in from behind that you got to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think a a lazy slob story. We were fighting a yellowfin in the canyons, looking down at it, doing pinwheels under the boat, probably like a 60, 70 pounder. About 60, 70 feet deep too. Yeah. It was clear. It was at night. We had had the underwater lights on and this tiger shark came out and we thought it was swimming up to it just to look at it, but it, it swam up. I'll never forget it. So slow. Like, it was it was like it was in slow motion, just a slow paddle up, and the fish is pinwheeling pretty quickly, and it just timed it around on a pinwheel, and literally just swam up nice and slow, opened its mouth, and ate a seventy pound elephant in one bite, and all of us were just like, "Did that really just happen?" It almost it, it looked fake. This might have been me 
imagining it, but it almost like created a shadow, like almost blacked out the underwater lights for a moment as it came through. Yeah. I mean, it had it was, to be. It, was uh, wild. it had to be wild. close to four feet wide. Yeah, you know. Up, up. Oh, there's monsters out there. Yeah. You know, we had that big thirteen footer that came in. It was uh, twelve hundred pounds uh, during a shark tournament. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Damon Sacco's fish. Yeah. I mean, there's big slobs out there. I went out and with Damon a couple of years later and tagged one. I mean, there's big slobs out there. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And there's hammerheads. There's all kinds of fish. That's like an aquarium. I mean, to, to be out in the canyons on a calm, you know, few days is just heaven. It's it really world class. Is. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Sitting in the Gulf Stream, it is just heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, I got one more random question before we get into this part. Um, you talked of all about uh, <laughs> seals and, and, you know, the types of fish all these sharks eat locally. Um, we've shark fished a ton offshore, uh, on our charters. And I've only had in my whole lifetime, one white shark that actually didn't even come up to the boat, uh, because we started chumming. It was actually right when we pulled up to the spot, came out and checked this out and was gone. Do white sharks not respond to like normal store-bought chum or do they, is it, are they purely hunting off of eyesight? Are they hunting off of mammal scent? Mammal blood? scent stuff. Like, is there a reason why we don't see them chumming? We could chum 40, 50 times a season, uh, you know, for multiple years in a row and not see a white shark. And then 15 miles south, you guys are seeing them uh, in the seals. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's absolutely amazing for. For 20 years, I collected data at shark tournaments, and I would survey every single boat as to not only what they caught and brought in, but also what they caught and released. And for the bulk of my career doing that, it was extremely rare for any of those guys to see or you know encounter a white shark. And when they did, it would either just be a, a flyby or the shark staying far away and checking them out from a distance or deep. Yeah. They never stuck around. You know, it's almost, you know, I've always been fascinated by it. And that, and that actually carries for that, that goes all the way back to, you know, colleagues of mine who were sampling tournaments in, in New York, New Jersey, you know, dating back to the sixties, you know, the, the rare, rare, rare incidents of white sharks in tournament catches um, by tournament participants and encounters is uncanny. And I think it's just because these animals don't have any interest in what we're showing them. You know, there might be a curiosity factor, you know, they will check out things at the surface. We see them, you know, go up to a, 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 check out a mole, you know, a sunfish, a mola mola at the surface. We'll see a white shark, see it, go up to it, check it out and then go away. You know, uh, floating garbage, lobster pots, buoys, you know, they'll check them out because they're interested um, what is that? And then they'll right. keep going. It, it's like whatever we're presenting, whether it's ground, menhaden, herring, mackerel, even bluefish, which I fished a lot with, they just, they didn't give a shit about it. You know, it so wasn't what range it didn't fire them up. You know, it's like, they're so tuned into marine mammals and perhaps other sharks, um, things that they naturally eat that what we present to them, you know, they're just not interested in chasing around, 
you know, little blue fish and mackerels and stuff. It's just not worth their time and energy. And therefore they, they're not, it's not part of their sensory array in terms of taste and smell. Um, and that hasn't changed all that much. I mean, I still talk to a lot of offshore guys and the fleet has really dropped out from years, years ago, for sharks, you know, yeah. for sharks, you yeah. know, obviously tuna is big still, um, and the Canyon runners, but for sharks, not a lot of guys do it. Maybe a handful of charter captains, mm-hmm. you know. We you know, used to do we, so much of it. We now. rarely do it now. now. We rarely do yeah. it. Yeah. 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 The tournaments aren't there. There's no interest in the tournaments. That's all dropped off. Um, but, but, but the guys I do, you know, it's mostly tuna fishermen now and it's bite offs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's bluefin losing their tails, you know, out at the, you know, the Regal Sword or on the bank or Jeffrey's. Um, you know, and, and even then, you know, I, I look at it, some of them are shredded and that tells me it's likely a, a make big Mako yeah. versus a white shark. If it's a nice clean cut, it's a big white shark. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, cause their teeth are really nice for slicing, whereas Makos are shredders. Um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 an interesting observation. Yeah. I can cut, count on really one hand, the number of white sharks encountered in all those years of tournament sampling. Now, when you go into these beaches looking to tag them, have you, I'm assuming people have experimented with chum, you know, you see white sharks near the, the seals. Have, have you guys chummed like just outside of them to see, do they turn off and come check out the chum slick or is it purely visual? Is it, is it like a location thing or is it purely a visual thing? Well, we, we tried chumming. A couple of times before now the state again my agency passed this right. regulation yeah, you can't which it. makes it illegal right and you know if we use the standard chum you know the ground bluefish or right. or, or menhaden you know there was no interest there you know oh. for me to draw their attention i would have had to use marine mammal mm, you know wow. um and even then you know we had permits to use marine mammal back when we we fished we, we had Chris Fisher and the O-Search guys here in 2012 and 13, and we committed an entire month of August, which is peak time, to white sharks in 2013 using marine mammal scent as chum, and, and we, only, we only tagged two fish you know, in one that's month. That's amazing. That's crazy. So, and that, was, that started telling me that it's really live animals they're interested yeah. in. So what's the chum from a live animal? Right. It's going to be, you know, any scent coming off their bodies in terms of oils mm-hmm. and sweat glands and that kind of stuff. But also it's going to be, you know, what they're producing in terms of urine and feces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I'm thinking that maybe that's the way you draw these animals if you were to chum for them. You know, they're tuned into those compounds that these animals are producing, those scent trails, hmm. you know, because, you know, they're they are interested in attacking and killing live animals. And, and when it comes to seals, and they're they've, they're not big scavenger of of seals, they will do it. But you know, I, I once used a whole dead seal carcass early, early on, um, and uh, back in two thousand nine, uh, we had we had there was a seal carcass floating uh, right off the beach where there were white sharks, and they didn't they didn't touch it. Wow. Yeah, you wonder if it's like an instinctual thing if. You know, the seal died because of a disease or something. Maybe it, you yeah, know, something that animals evolution, putting off. Evolution, right. Scent changes yeah, as it degrades. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. But then, they, but then again, they eat dead whales. So. Yeah, that's so strange. <laughs> you know. But they eat dead whales. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen them in all stages of decomposition that these sharks will will go after. Huh. So it's it's interesting. But you know, the whale carcass is different from the seal carcass. Mm. You know, it's producing different compounds in terms of what these animals are interested in. So it's a whole area of research. It's really hard to do, um, but it'd be worth trying. Hmm. And it's fun to talk about. It is. Yeah, it's definitely fun to talk <laughs> it's about. It's exciting. Yeah. You want to ask your final two? No, you can ask one of them. <clears throat> All right. Um, I mean, we've we've kind of talked about this in every piece of this conversation, but where do you generally see the coastal shark population in the next 20 plus years? Yeah, I mean, with any... So with any species, and, and I know you'll probably ask about seals too at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah, yeah. that's you know, the next one. So if we're, if we're talking about seals, we're talking about sharks, we're talking about, you know, uh, deer, you know, yeah. um, they're, they're, the, the system itself, the ecosystem itself has a carrying capacity um, that it can, you know, where, where, you know, whether we're talking sharks or seals, you know, not, not all can survive because there's limited resources. Um, and then you also have, um, disease that breaks out in high densities of animals. So we, we've already seen some of that in seals. You know, there's actually been a couple of disease breakouts along the main coast that have taken down large numbers of seals. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think, I believe it's distemper, you know, which is we see typically in, in, uh, in, in dogs. Um, but related diseases that do you have to deal with high densities in fish, you don't so much see disease as you see, you know, increases in, in social interactions um, and competition. You know, when you have a top predator like white sharks, you know, you don't, a white shark doesn't want a lot of white sharks near it because it wants to kill a seal and eat that seal without having to lose that seal to another white shark. And so you get social interactions. And so, you get competition and, and eventually you might even get territoriality with where one white shark will displace others. And we're starting to see some aspects of that. So there is going to be, that's why any given day, you might not have a thousand white sharks there because other white sharks will push them out. Mm-hmm. So you get that, that happening with white sharks and what that number is, what that balance is, we'll probably be able to figure it out at some point. I don't know what it is right now, but overall the population will continue to grow and expand into other areas, you know, and we're seeing that in the Gulf of Maine. And as you guys talked about Canadian waters, where more and more white sharks might just swing into Cape Cod like a Burger King and say, okay, I'll, I'll grab a Whopper and, or maybe the damn line to get a Whopper is too long. So I'm just going to keep going into the Gulf of Maine or maybe check out Cape Cod Bay or run the coastline up to Gloucester and then keep going up to where there's, you know, plenty of uh, harbor seals and gray seals in the Gulf of Maine. Um, and so, yeah, I think it will continue to grow until it reaches carrying capacity or, or to the point where at least locally, those social interactions and the competition displaces animals. Right. Um, what that number is, I don't know, you know, with seals, we may be able to determine that number, you know, there will be a carrying capacity to the system where, you know, seals are actually competing with us as well. Right. Right. You know, because we're trying to harvest groundfish resources and, and other resources that these seals are also targeting. So we've got to calculate what the human impact is on those populations and then how the seals might react to that. And I know that most recreational and commercial fishermen view the seals as being one royal pain in the ass, you know? Yeah, we've had a lot of people pushing uh, the seals being an issue, especially on the bluefin side and 
really stripe out everything that we do. You know, right. everybody doesn't quote unquote doesn't like seals. Right, right, and I and I and I I sympathize with those folks. You know, um, absolutely, because and so you know, what do we do about them? So what's you know the next question is what's the solution? Right to this, right? You know, and um, so in the absence of any changes to the Marine Mammal Protection Act which I don't foresee coming anytime soon. Yeah. You know, um, that's a pretty tightly written act um, that would need to be altered at the highest levels. So legislatively uh, in at the federal level um, that would allow for some kind of reduction in the seal population. Um, and for that to happen, you'd have to calculate what that reduction would need to be. And I think a lot of fishermen would like to see it go back to way it was, you know, perhaps back in the 80s and 90s. And when, you know, you could go out and catch fish and didn't have to deal with this seal population. But for that kind of reduction to happen, you're talking about a cull on the order of, you know, tens of thousands of animals. And I just don't think that is ever going to happen. Yeah. You know, I don't think that with the major conservation groups that are out there now and the and what the American public is willing to allow, um, I don't think that level of population reduction will ever be tolerated, you know, from a realistic point of view. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, versus what you want versus what you think might happen. Right. You know, could could there be a, you know, okay, well, let we'll let you take a thousand animals, you know, will, will a thousand animals make much of a difference? You know, a lot of the seals that we have here come from other parts and there's routine movement. It's not like they're trapped on Cape Cod. They move between Sable Island, Canada, and the Gulf of Maine quite frequently. And so you remove 500 seals here. The next year you could have 500 seals coming from other parts, filling that right in. You know, it's like, it's kind of like deer hunting to some extent, you know, you shoot a big buck in an area next year, there's another big buck that's probably going to be there, you know, um, because these animals are moving and, and, and they exploit open areas where, where perhaps an animal has been removed. Another one's going to come in and fill in. And so you're talking about a major population reduction, which I don't think is going to be possible. You know, from my perspective, what I want to do is I want to figure out what kind of damage can the sharks do to that population? You know, not only the ones around Cape Cod, but up in the Gulf of Maine, because they're moving up here and into these shallow areas to feed on seals. And it's their job. You know, you know, if we look at predators and prey, you know, you wor- work your way up the food chain throughout the food web. You know, the shark's job is to reduce the seal population to a natural level that's sustainable, you know, from an ecological point of view. So we're really curious is, okay, how many, how many seals will a white shark eat over the summer? And how many seals will a white shark population eat? You know, now, will it be enough to satisfy the, you know, the interests of commercial and recreational fishermen? Probably not. But if they do their job correctly, they're going to reduce that population. Hmm. Do you have any data uh, as far as how much how much a white shark eats throughout the course of a day, a week, a month? No, we're, we're using a variety of technologies now to try to answer that question. Yeah. And um, whether it be drone observations or some of our tagging technologies with cameras built into them, you know, we have really and, and you would think that with the amount of time I'm on the water, the team is on the water off Cape Cod 
you know, over the course of a summer that we would see white sharks eating seals every day or every week. And it's remarkable how little we see them succeed. Hmm. So, you know, and we know there's a learning curve for these animals and we may not be out at the right time. What if it's all happening at night? You know, um, but we're trying to figure that out. You know, how many seals will a shark take? We know that certain sharks stay all summer and they're not going to stay all summer if they're not eating. Right. Right. So they've got to be doing well. And so the number is how, you know, what is that number? So I'm hoping over the course of the next year or two, I can figure that out, but that's all part of our ongoing research. It's awesome. It's so awesome. Um, <clears throat> this has been amazing by the way. Yes. For, for us. And I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of this and it's very educational. Um, it's been incredible. And, and just to circle back to you, Greg, I know you have, uh, one book that you've written and another that you've collaborated on, or is it more than that? Well, you know, I, I went through this phase you know, as a kid, you know, going back to my childhood, because I was so obsessed with fish and sharks. I had, I had aquariums as growing up. You know, a lot of kids do. Um, so I got into this phase of my life where I wrote a whole bunch of aquarium books about how to keep aquariums. And I did like 12 or 13 or 14 aquarium books. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, so you could probably find, find me at Amazon if you look up my name for aquarium books. Um, I've done three editions of my book called The Shark Handbook, mm -hmm. um, which uh, the, the most recent edition just came out um, late last year. And so that's out there. And uh, it's called The Shark Handbook, which is kind of like not just white shark centric, but it's about all the shark research I've done and other scientists have done and how we go about doing research and all the diversity of shark species with a whole shitload of photographs um, that I've taken and others have taken. Um, and now I'm putting together another book, uh, perhaps for next year to come out, that'll be more white shark centric. And so keep your eyes open for that. That's exciting. Uh, next year. So yeah, yeah. Um, I'm forever trying to do all kinds of cool things and, and, uh, and share that with the public. You know, I'm, I'm all about doing, it. even though I have to admit, I'm really lousy with social media. I don't do any. Um, but I, uh, and I, maybe I will as time goes on, but, uh, uh, I like to get out and interact with the public and, and give talks and do those kinds of things. We always love listening to you. You're very well spoken and, um, it's always a pleasure. How, how else can people, uh, find out about, your research websites, I know social media, you're not, you're not too up to date with, but you do have, you do have profile on Facebook and Instagram. I uh, do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I have those. I don't check them very often. Most of them say, if you go to them, if you want to reach me, email me. Um, but you know, I work for the division of marine fisheries, as you guys know. So the state website has some information, certainly on how to contact me. Um, but it's a typical bureaucratic website. So we tend to put out notices and regulations, yeah. you know, we're really good at regulating people. That's what we do. Yeah. Right. So, um, <laughs> most people don't like to go to our website unless you want to get permits and those kinds of things. Um, but I do have some pages there. Um, but I also encourage folks go to the Atlantic white shark conservancy social media pages because they do a great job of sharing what we do, uh, through social media and their, and their website in terms of videos and photos and up to date, you know, research projects. So, you know, as, as much as I'd love to point you toward the division marine fisheries, certainly check it out. But, um, as far as staying up to date, go to the, uh, go to the Atlantic white shark conservancy's Facebook, you know, and Instagram, whatever, all those pages. Yeah. Awesome.
Awesome, awesome. Anything else, T? No, this was a a small. Oh, this was a dream come true. We've both been so <laughs> excited. No, seriously, we've both been so excited yep. for this conversation. He's been frothing, frothing over this bit. conversation <laughs> for a couple of weeks. So, as a vibe, but um. Again, Greg, thank you so, so much for doing this with us. And we're definitely going to do it again. And as you guys progress and research and awesome. data over the next few years, we'd be glad to have you on and spread the word and, um, you know, give notice to our, our fishermen following. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you got Brian Taylor. The, uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, thank, you know, I, I can't thank the fishing public and commercial fishermen for really helping me get to where I am today. They've been instrumental in teaching me, you know, how to learn from being on the ocean and, and sharing what they know with me, you know, guys like you. So thanks so much. And, um, I really appreciate it. And you know, maybe in a few months, even get Megan Winton on. She's fantastic. She's a great scientist and, and she'll call herself a nerd, but you know, she is really outgoing and is excellent at sharing what she does. And then one of my other ex students, Jeff Kneebone, um, who's really, really active in, in, in tuna research still and, and shark research. Jeff's at the New England Aquarium. Megan's at the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. They're both, and and both are love to fish. You know, they're fishing scientists. Awesome. And so, uh, so keep those two names in mind okay. as people to go to in the future. We will. We'll set up a conversation with, uh, with both of them. Um, Excellent. That'd, that'd be great. And uh, yeah. we're gonna we're just gonna end this on Old Greg's three words of wisdom. Our father, Old Greg. Uh, just remember, you can't catch them if you don't have a hook in the water. Always trust your instincts. And the last one, you'll just have to keep listening. Stay tight, everybody. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. No problem. We'll talk to you oh, later, thanks, awesome. guys. Right, Thank you. See you Take later. Care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Seabros Fishing Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guest, products that we use, or other podcast partners, please check out the description for this episode on our website, seabrosfishing.com. For information on our tail and fish artwork commissions or to order our hats and other products, please check out our website or shoot us a message on Instagram. Make sure you check out our YouTube channel, give it a like and subscribe. And finally, if you want to book a fishing charter with us on one of the Mass Bay Guides boats, please visit massbayguides.com and call the office to book a trip. We appreciate you all.